Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of SFC Connects. Um, today, we have Amanda Fernandez, founder of Inclusify with us, uh, with a focus on auditing and innovation. Inclusify guides organizations in building truly diverse workforces that thrive in cultures of equity and inclusion. So welcome, Amanda. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Sampara. This is such an exciting opportunity for me. And um, I think I should add, this is my first podcast ever. So I'm oh, so excited. <laughs> That's <laughs> so awesome. Excited. Well, <laughs> we've been doing this now for about three months. And we started the conversations around uh, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic. But we uh, mm. started to expand into other areas that um, obviously have to do with skills for changes, mission and vision. And so yep. I really wanted to have you on today um, to talk about uh, not only your experience as an immigrant to Canada, um, but also delve into some of your um, experiences as being uh, an entrepreneur and starting your entrepreneurial, uh, you know, uh, your business and, uh, you know, some advice that you may have for others who are looking to start their businesses and um, advice, ar advice around what you do, particularly with uh, diversity and inclusion. So, um, which is uh, yeah. you know, something that we're very passionate about talking about through Skills for Change. We host our Diversity at Work conference every year, and we've been hosting our series of uh, anti-Black racism workshops, uh, particularly around um, racism in the workplace. So I'm really, really excited to have you. So thanks for joining us. And let's just uh, dive into your experience as, you know, a new immigrant to Canada. Can you talk about your journey? Yes, absolutely. So um, I was born in India and I lived there for the first eight years of my life. Mm -hmm. And then as with most brown emigration, uh, we spent six years in Dubai before coming to Canada. And uh, so my journey as an immigrant will be different from someone who is either older or younger, right? Because I came here in my teens right. and in the last two years, uh, two months of grade nine. Yeah. And so what was that experience? Like you said, it's, it's different than coming as an adult who is either coming with by themselves or as a young family and then looking to, you know, get into the Canadian workplace and a Canadian economy or when you're very little and kind of don't remember the experience of immigrating. Right. What was that right. experience like of you starting, um, you know, high school here? And, and did you face any like racism or was, was it, did it feel more welcoming? What was that like? Right. Well, transitions are always challenging. And so for my parents, I imagine um, it would have been having to navigate a new country, having to navigate a new economy, having to navigate new organizational cultures, mm -hmm. and sadly having to fit in, yeah. um, change themselves to make themselves fit in. And, I, and I, I hate the word fit and fitting in. And we'll come back to this word in a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I was a child, 14 or 15 years old, and my challenges were different. Yeah. Uh, I did not have to worry about putting food on the table or shel sheltering two little ones, yeah? yeah? And not surprisingly, for those of you know, for those who know me, uh, this will come as no surprise. I was and still continue to be very mouthy, mm -hmm. and um, both at school and at home. And you know, adolescent years are not the easiest years to be navigating and bridging two different cultures. Yeah. And my poor parents, like 
what can I say other than my poor, poor parents? Uh, when I think back to what I put them through, oh, um, and yeah, and I have really open-minded parents, uh, but still, you know, I was a challenging child to raise, and I am so very proud to share right now that I still make it my business to make my parents' life challenging. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they appreciate it in a different way. <laughs> but I suppose that is another conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that, that's really interesting that you kind of brought up like, you know, the difference between, um, you know, coming here for your experience and obviously um, navigating the space um, for your parents. And I am interested in hearing more about uh, your, you know, uh, the, the words that you say fit. So we'll talk about that in the coming uh, questions that I have for you. Um, but mm -hmm. walk us through uh, your education and your career path in terms of, you know, what led you overall to eventually end up starting your business? Right. Well, as you know, most good brown parents, they prioritized education above all else. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why we moved here was so that my brother and I could have a better life, a better education. Right. And when I finished high school, this was just the start of my education journey. So right after high school, I attended the University of Toronto for my bachelor, uh, my honors bachelor of arts in English. Right. Uh, my parents took care of my essential needs like food and shelter and clothing and I worked um, summers and during the school year at all kinds of jobs to pay for tuition and to pay for bus and subway fare. So two, tra two transit systems, yeah? Mississauga Transit and then TTC. Right. And the kinds of jobs that I worked were numerous and varied. Um, and so after graduation, I started working full time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I took courses on the side. So I had always been in school. Um, and in each of these jobs, I never lasted more than a year or a year and a half because I was always restless. Mm -hmm. I, I got and still continue to get bored very easily. And as soon as I've learned all that I can in a particular yeah. job, which is why entrepreneurship fits very well with the kind of person that I am, I would jump jobs. Mm -hmm. um, I was always looking for that next stepping stone. Um, and w one of my darkest fears is becoming complacent and stagnant. Right. Right. Anyway, getting back to schooling. Um, I have a certificate. So I have a degree in English. I have a certificate in human resources management, which mm -hmm. I followed up by doing a master's in information at U of T. I did that part-time while working full-time um, at U of T at the University of Toronto Libraries running projects. Mm -hmm. um, so after I had done, I had finished my first master's, um, Saskatoon Public Library made me an offer I could not refuse. So I moved to Saskatoon. Wow. And, <laughs> um, and I learned so much in that job. I got to do so many different things, so many meaningful things during my two years there. And at the midpoint, I started my executive uh, master's of business administration, MBA at Queen's. And this was and continues to be one of the richest of ed educational learning opportunities. Um, 
as you know, MBAs are not cheap. They're in the six figures. And when people ask me, would I do it again? Yeah. Was it worth it? My standard answer is I would do it again for three times the price. Wow. Yep. What? That is how much I took away from it. Of course, I invested just as much. I had no life for two years. <laughs> what was the what was it about the the, the program or that uh, that you you know uh, really absolutely tried? loved yeah, yeah. Uh, the content was just great like what they taught how they taught it was just great but queen's queen's claim to fame is that they teach you how to leverage the power of teams and how they do it is absolutely magical mm. and completely amazing and if it wasn't for my education and time with Queens Inclusify would not exist and whatever nonsense definition of entrepreneur I went into that program with is yeah. not the same one I graduated with <laughs> Wow so yeah so, so how, did, how you know. did it change your mindset about um, you know going into entrepreneur entrepreneurship um, you know, to this day, people have asked me that question before, and I, for the life of me, I cannot remember what I went into that program with, what <laughs> definitions, what mindset of entrepreneurship, but um, the courses on entrepreneurship and execution and implementation, mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking specifically about Elspeth Murray's course on entrepreneurship and Catherine Broman's course on managing organizational change and shift and execution mind-blowing like my mind was just and then I think about the foundation that uh, Paul Roman set one of my professors with you know operational management and the three just came together for me and now I had a new vocabulary to things that I had already been doing I just didn't know I was doing it and then not just that I, I learned ways of doing it better right that's amazing and so did yeah. you um did you uh, you know conceptualize inclusify like shortly after your mba or yes how did that yes happen? so one of the things one of the wickets that we had to hit in the mba was we had a, an individual project that we had to do we had to either one help an existing organization solve a management problem so think okay. about management consulting right mm -hmm. Which was like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. That's cool. But it's already kind of what I already do. I'm not interested in doing the same thing over and over again. And the other thing that we could do was to test our new venture idea. Okay. And so if you had a startup in mind, if you had a business idea that you wanted to test, and this is zero yeah. risk, right? You, yeah. you, you were set up with advisors. Right. You, people who knew what they were doing and you got to build business plans, you know, and they really tested you. Mm -hmm. They pushed back in all kinds of areas. And that was, while I it did not, at that time, it did not dawn on me to go into diversity, equity, and inclusion. Okay. Um, I was testing uh, my own consulting firm that I specifically wanted to do um, in the public sector, specifically for libraries. I'm a librarian. Um, so that's where it started and it was that foundation, uh -huh. that rich learning, that Inclusify was born. So, uh, what was, 
journey from that to, you know, the focus on diversity and inclusion for you? Uh, I noticed that as I rose through the ranks in, in the public sector from manager to senior manager to director, mm -hmm. there were less and less people who looked like me. There were yeah. less and less people who had experiences that I've had yeah. as an immigrant, as yeah. you know, just being the only person of color at yeah. the decision-making table. And yeah. then they started to think about, well, if as a, as a public sector organization, we support our local communities in their growth and development. Mm -hmm. Number one, how are we supposed to understand and meet their needs, right? right? That's just the base level. Number two, if we are all homogenous, how are we supposed to innovate? How are we supposed to anticipate needs and come up with solutions for which the problem yet does not exist? Yep. And this, this, this thinking about homogeneity and Kaizen, continuous improvement and innovation and supporting how, just how diverse Canada is mm -hmm. led to Inclusify. Wow, that's amazing. And, um, and so can you come back to talking about, you know, this idea of, uh, you know, diversity and inclusion, your business and mm -hmm. idea of the fit. So you talked yeah. a little bit about how, you know, how yep. we learn from each other if we all, you know, were homogenous, look the same, acted the same. So, so talk, talk a little bit about that fit and how, um, how being, yep different and uh, having different ideas and looking different can uh, really, you know, enhance a company and like really make the yeah. Right. So one of the things that I noticed was when I walked into work, there was a huge part of me that I left behind. Mm -hmm. There's a huge part that I checked at the door, which was my brownness. Yeah. And it didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if I check my brownness at the door, yes, you can still see the color of my skin. However, I'm still bringing whiteness in. As you can tell, I, can, I speak with little to no accent. Yep. And it's quite apparent when I open my mouth that I am educated and I'm educated here. And I firmly believe that we should be able to bring our whole selves to work. Yeah. Organizations cannot create meaningful spaces of belonging and inclusion or capitalize on diversity if those of us who are not white have to leave huge portions of our identity at the door. Yeah. So my goal is to make diversity, equity, and inclusion with Inclusify. This is what I work on. It's to make diversity, equity, and inclusion everyday organizational habits of excellence. So not to treat DEI, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, acronym DEI, as a side of the desk commitment or one-off engagement. You know, you offer a training and you check that box. Yeah, right. No. Right? Inclusify does not do check-the-box activities. We do not offer, you know, um, one-size-fits-all kind of solutions because your organizational culture is different. The people who work in your organization are different. And this is a dialectical process. So what we focus on is solving equity challenges at a systemic level okay. in terms of looking at practices and processes and system supports and organizational culture and characteristics and performance, we audit, we benchmark, we have KPIs, right. key performance indicators, pardon me. And we also look at governance. 
-hmm. And what's driving all of this, what is at the heart of all of this is how disheartening, you know, new forms of neocolonialism and the iterative and utter mind-blowing nonsense that is the cumulative forms of slavery that have harmed our black community. And this is what I want to put, in, put an end to with Inclusify, with my work with Inclusify, because Black Lives Matter, period. I was going to jump to some other questions about your business, but we can get into that later. What, what are companies doing wrong? Oh, how much time you got, Sambara? <laughs> I get it's a loaded question. I get it. Um, so access some of the this type of these benchmarks, they can access these benchmarks from these KPIs. What are companies getting wrong? And then I'm going to follow up with a more of a, you know, focused question on, on women in the workplace. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. So to begin with, as I said previously, we treat diversity, equity, and inclusion as a side of the desk commitment. Yeah. We don't treat it like an organizational habit, right? right. It's something that we, we think about after the fact. We don't treat it in the same way we treat safety. When there is a fire, we know what to do. Right. We know what the process is, but when we hear a racist slur at work or even unintended racist yeah. comments, right. we were like, oh, right, what we, you, most of us usually freeze and we don't know how to engage with that. Yeah. That's number one. So th there's that lack of education, there's that lack of training piece, there's a lack of pro step one, do this, step two, do this, right? We don't have that framework, which Inclusify does. Mm -hmm. um, number two. This, this really bothers me to no end. We set up committees and task forces mm -hmm. to deal with systemic issues that have existed for hundreds of years. Right. And we rely on BIPOC, so Black Indigenous People of Color, with yes. no expertise in the subject matter other than having the skin, the skin in the game. Yeah, yeah. To fix a systemic issue that's nonsense yeah like and if you think about it bipocs exist in the bottom rungs of the organization with yeah. no power to execute right. no resources no budget right and you want them to solve an equity issue how is that going to happen yeah dei specifically needs to be managed Mm -hmm. and executed from the top of the organization, as in somebody with the right to vote yep. and the right to make decisions at the top of the organization needs to manage diversity, equity, and inclusion. And the other piece of it is DEI gets lumped in with HR. Uh, no, it's not an HR function. Mm -hmm. HR is corporate services right. in the same way IT is corporate services. Yeah. DEI is its own entity and it needs to be managed with someone who knows what they're doing, who has the expertise more than just, oh, I'm brown, so I know. Right, right. And that's really, really like very, very interesting and thought provoking. I think you're absolutely right is that those the, that are the decision makers that have the financial means to, you know, to invest in, um, you know, programs that will you know, change the behaviors of the in, entire company. They're the ones that need to be um, at the front and center of this. But how do you, and again, I'm throwing some questions at you, so I apologize. Bring it. Um, <laughs> Bring it. What about this idea that, you know, I've often heard 
um, from uh, individuals who are in the field of diversity and inclusion training is um, what about how do you deal with the fact that people's beliefs are their beliefs, their unconscious biases are their unconscious biases? Okay, so when unconscious for everyone who's listening, please stop spending money on unconscious bias training. It does not work. <laughs> it doesn't work. You cannot train bias out of your system. What we can do is learn to manage. Right. Learn to be more self-aware. Learn to possibly start investigating where our blind spots are. Mm -hmm. And you need specific tools. You need someone who can guide you through that conversation to mm -hmm. guide you through your uncomfortableness. Yes. And it's supposed to be uncomfortable. If some, if you bring in a DEI trainer and they're making you feel good about yourself and you're like, Oh my God, this is the best thing ever. Right. This person is not doing their job because race-based conversations, conversations about gender, conversations about ethnicity are uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, they they're supposed to be uncomfortable. And if you go back to Susan A. David, mm -hmm. who beautifully articulates this, right? Discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. Right. And in order for growth to happen, in order for learning to happen, guess what? If you're not feeling that discomfort, if you're not feeling that uncomfortableness, nothing's happening. Yeah. Companies are, you know, starting to, they're, they're, I'm sure you probably have uh, some companies in mind that are doing this the right way, right? That are um, not, um, you know, tasking this to their HR folks or to individuals just because of the, the color of their skin that they're, you know, actually focusing on having a diversity and inclusion department with people who are trained such as yourself to deliver and, um, you know, um, advance these issues, but do you have any companies or anything, any uh, organizations that you've worked at in mind that are doing this the right way, that are being effective in how they're deliver, how they're you know uh, advancing this? So we are working with a couple of clients right now, and unfortunately, we do not share client names. Of course, right? yeah. Obviously. <laughs> um, uh, that being said, there are a few large companies that are doing quite well. But again, keep in mind, they have the resources to throw at it and they are throwing buckets of money at it because right. it needs just that much money. So somewhere to start looking at to see how they're doing things really well is Google. Right. See how they're, man are they getting it right all the time? No. Mm -hmm. But that's not the point. The point is we need to come to terms with that. We are going to fail yeah. and we're going to have to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off and try again. This is failing right. forward. And there is no one size solution that's going to make everything right. This is not, there's no destination here. This is a journey. Mm -hmm. It's like yoga. Yeah. It's a practice. And, but so then what do we do about companies that don't have the financial means. So a lot of like small to medium sized businesses, for example, and like one example I'll give it, I'm sure that, um, you know, uh, small, we, you know, when we talk about the women and the particular situation that has uh, happened as a result of COVID with, you know, RBC reporting 1.5 million women losing their jobs in the first two months of the recession. 
um, what like what can we do to support the women, but particularly the you know support employers in small to medium sized businesses that may have had to let go of individuals that have those you know uh, challenges such as women do with childcare and things like that. Why? Mm -hmm. Happening and what can we do to support those companies so that they understand how important it is for them to, you know, look at that from a different lens so that women are not affected as greatly as it is is happening and is going to increase in the weeks, months, and years to come. So this is an incredibly challenging question to answer because there are so many layers built into it and so many interdependencies. So some of the questions that came to mind as you were asking this question was, one, um, the pre-COVID world was never kind to women or the IPOC. Sure, yeah. Right? And all COVID did was highlight the existing discrepancies and the extent to which these discrepancies exist. Right. Number two, why are we solely looking at organizations to solve a societal and a social problem? Mm -hmm. And so what I mean here, which leads me to my third point, is usually parenting is a shared responsibility. Right. And so why are we returning childcare to women being the sole caregivers? Right. Which leads into, in, in cases where women are the sole caregivers, we have to appreciate that as a society and as a legal system, we award child custody more often than not to mothers. And then we don't follow, and then we don't follow that up by ensuring that the other parent is financially responsible for childcare. Right. So, um, so a study done in 1999, and I know this is slightly dated, but it highlights points in your question: is a court study, a, a court ordered custody arrangement granted the mother exclusive custody at 79.3 percent of the time, and this statistic only reflects mother exclusive custody. Father exclusive sits at 6.6%, and the balance is shared is shared physical custody. And these yeah. are just Canadian stats, right, from the Department of Justice. Yeah. Um, and to answer the last last part of your question with childcare, again, so many rich layers here. You know, both parents and especially male employees, regardless of whether or not they are married, should have access to childcare. Yeah. Right. Number two. Women's identities outside of work are not limited to childcare yeah. and should not be tied to heteronormative ideals. So by centering women's identities and responsibilities and limiting it to the maternal role, what we're essentially doing here is inadvertently su supporting patriarchy. Right. So we're not lifting everyone up. We're just positioning women back again as, as the sole caregiver. Mm -hmm when there's so many ways you need to look at this and it's interdisciplinary here and if you touch one thing it's going to necessarily if you, if you are going to necessarily have an impact on something we can't just start looking at organizational responsibility we're going to fix this fully we need to take a systems approach to it yeah and i i 100 agree with that but um you know what about the you know the 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 current situation where you have like a small business owner that's just like, no, I just, I just need to get this done. And your schedule, because, um, you know, you have an intersectionality of being a woman, but maybe being an, a, an immigrant woman and mm -hmm. some, uh, you know, 
uh, ideological beliefs uh, from various countries come into Canada in terms of the woman being the primary care provider and that yeah. having to be there and, uh, you know, there having to be a need to kind of uh, address the fact that that this is, you know, maybe maybe not a can you know, like quote unquote Canadian belief, but it may be something that another you know somebody from another country is bringing. That so how do you how do you mesh that together and be able to still support a woman in that particular situation and uh, try to try to you know speak to the small business owner who's saying that I just can't afford to have this person work you know different shifts or have to understand the fact that this person has this um, childcare issue or whatnot. Yeah, so let me flip it around for you. Um, let's reframe this. So if the business owner, the small business owner said, I don't hire black people, mm -hmm. what would your response be? <laughs> Unacceptable. Unacceptable, exactly. Yeah. Unacceptable. Right. Would you go spend money at this person's business? No, absolutely not. So why, why are we, so there's an education piece here, right? You want our, our discretionary funds in your organization. Know that we want to be equitable. Yeah. To me, when I hear things like that, mm -hmm. it's, let's reframe. I'm sorry. I don't hire black people. I just, I, I just realized that <laughs> that's exactly what I did in terms of, you know, looking at one as like, you know, a very clear cut response, right? And another one. Yep. Yeah. Very, very thought provoking. They're really interesting way to, um, you know, you've kept me speechless, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. I mean, yes, as in, I, I'm glad that I'm delivering value. Um, right, because I would hate for someone to, you know, set time aside for me and me show up and deliver nothing. No, I, and but uh, the thing is, these are the conversations that we need to have so that we do understand that it doesn't work um, in one way or for one particular person and that we have we to bring everyone with us. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly. the thing. We bring yeah. everyone with us. And like you said, look at it as from a societal issue as opposed to an organizational one where we're just trying to change, you know. Yeah. And not that I'm saying that there isn't an interrelationship and an interdependency between organizations and society. Organizations necessarily exist in society and there is a dialectical relationship here. Mm. Uh, I get it, right? there's a rubbing off that happens but we really need to be thinking deeply about this because equity issues are rhizomatic and mm -hmm. the roots are deep right and um you know i had some questions around you know your journey as an entrepreneur um which uh you know i really do want to get into but obviously we got more in depth into this part of the conversation so um, I guess I'll just kind of end with asking you around, um, particularly because we, you know, Skills for Change has a newcomer entrepreneurship program, and we see, yeah. we see a lot of immigrants come into the country, and, you know, a high percentage of them uh, end up starting their own businesses, uh, whether it be that it's, uh, they find it uh, to be a, a kind of 
you know, a, a more, um, what do you call it, a sustainable way to make income, um, or mm-hmm. they have business ideas from their home countries that they've brought over here. They, they have that. Mm-hmm. So why do you think it is important for um, immigrants and why do you think that they choose to start their own business? And, and then I'll, I'll follow it up with the last question on the advice that you have, particularly to new immigrants who are starting to look at uh, uh, starting a business right. so that they can okay. um, avoid some, you know, mistakes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I'll, so let, let's start here. Um, let's start with answering a question about why newcomers choose to start their own business. I'm not sure I can answer this question because remember my experience as an immigrant is way different than someone who came here in their Mm thirties, right? I was a child when I came here and I have had the immense privilege of a Canadian education. I've got three degrees. Two of them are masters from two of Canada's best universities. Mm -hmm. And again, I speak with little to no accent. I'm a great example of the model minority. Mm -hmm. Right. And I will say this, for immigrant entrepreneurs, expect to make a crap ton of mistakes as you navigate the Canadian economy. Um, And it's okay to make these mistakes, and some of these mistakes are going to be expensive. What I would choose to focus on instead is not beating ourselves up. Instead, spend time dissecting how and why this happened and seek feedback with every setback. So whenever I've gotten a rejection, whenever I've, you know, failed at something, I seek feedback. And this this feedback seeking process is so important and yet so uncomfortable. And it's hard to sit there and listen to how you have made this huge blunder. But guess what? If you don't invest it when you figure out when there's been a mistake, you're going to continue to repeat that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what's going to, getting this feedback and learning from it is what's going to make sure is what's going to ensure that you are you're setting yourself up for success. Right. Right. Um, there was a third part to your question and I should have written it down, but I can't remember now. <laughs> well, we talked about, you, you know, uh, I guess, I guess, like you said, there's no real avoidable mistakes that mistakes are going to happen. Um, uh-huh. Really, uh, you know, take the feedback and learn from it. I think that was, that was kind of the point that, uh, you know, um, I was trying to get at is, uh, you know, what kind of advice from that perspective can you give to new entrepreneurs, newcomer entrepreneurs? Right. Yeah. And, right. Okay. So, uh, okay. So if you're thinking of this, if you're thinking of entrepreneurship, as a solution to gain access to, uh, to to engaging with the Canadian economy in a different way so that you don't have to go into an existing organization, I'm going to be quite blunt here. And I'm going to say entrepreneurship is not a panacea. So in order, what, what allowed me to be successful as an entrepreneur to make Inclusify work was Number one, my education at Queen's, right? And that project that I had the support of business advisors who had done this before me, number one. Then number two, as I was navigating how to set up a business, that's one thing. Figuring out how business models work and how to have an impact is a completely different thing altogether. And for me, Queen's came out to bat here. 
my professors spent time with me, listening to me and guiding me. Senior administration at Queens connected me with other people and resources. And how lucky was I? Right? That being said, that, 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 that's a complete privilege, right. what, I got, what I had, right? So, and this is why I say entrepreneurship is not a panacea to this problem because it takes mental, emotional, and financial investment to be an entrepreneur. It is a place of privilege. The expectation that anyone can be an entrepreneur is just complete nonsense. Right. Because before embarking on an entrepreneurial journey, do your homework. Right. And know that it's not just about your idea, which may be solid, or it's not just about your business model, which may be stellar. It's not just about the timing or your team or who's helping you out and or funding. We, don't forget, we need funding. Yep. But it's about all of these five factors taken into consideration at once. And know that your idea, your business model, the timing, your team, and your funding, they're not equally ranked. Mm -hmm. And so if you're an entrepreneur, know that overnight success takes 10 years. Yeah. And this is why I say entrepreneurship is based on, on a place of privilege. Mm -hmm. It comes from a place of privilege. And I think that... Um to your point about having, you know, the privilege of having advisors and, and things like that, one of the things that we could probably recommend is, you know, not to get, you know, giving a plug to Skills for Change, but looking at programs, yeah, no, absolutely yes. programs, but where they can access mentors, right? Where they can get services for free, where they can get the supports for free, but also the mentorship piece is very critical. Mm. And uh, so I think this is where we could, you know, support them, but have that same, same idea that you had where you came from this, uh, you know, uh, this model of having, you know, all these advisors and being able to develop a concept and see and test out that concept and see if it really worked. There are other ways that they can utilize that. 100%. Yeah, yeah. this is just my way. So anything that I've shared today is how it worked for me. And yeah. on a very individual basis yeah Absolutely. what works for me will not work for someone else what you're saying can translate to somebody who is a newcomer just in a different exactly yeah. you can choose what works for you and drop the rest yeah exactly well listen amanda i've taken up so much of your time and uh, we could we could explore these issues till you know forever i could sit here and have this conversation with you for hours and just uh, same to, uh, absorb and learn so much from you and I hope that we can have you back to delve into some of these um, these areas uh, even more but I just wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to at least get to the surface of having some you know conversations around around uh, diversity inclusion around entrepreneurship and your experience and your your journey because it is it is a really unique one and it is um, something that I think a lot of people can learn from it was such a pleasure. Reach out anytime, Sambara. Uh, Skills for Change is an organization that is near and dear to my heart. And I know of the good work that you're doing, and I'm happy to support Skills for Change and you in any way that I can. Thank you so much, Amanda. You take care. We'll talk soon.